Hi, I'm Steve Thompson, and today we're going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening, we must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked some one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father's killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. In all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This is another of Jesus' most famous parables. And if you've grown up around the church at all, you probably feel like you not only know the story, but you know all the cultural background to this story as well. I'm going to bank on the fact that Doug Squink, when he speaks on this in a couple of Sundays, uh, that he'll fill in a lot of the details and the context to this story. So you'll you'll hear that again. And, and that said, I'd like to kind of take a completely different angle. So stay with me here. We're going to take a little unexpected journey but we're going to come back to this passage, okay? So we've been going through Deuteronomy in our family devotions. And there's a part that all of my kids, but specifically my 11-year-old daughter Zoe, has been hung up on. 
You see, there are all of these rules and laws that are difficult to wrap our minds around from our vantage point in time, history, and culture. And one of the regulations that came up as we were reading it is that disabled people were not allowed to worship in the assembly of the tabernacle or temple. So to roughly translate that into our context, what it would look like was that if a person had a disability and they came to worship at Watermark, they would have to stand or sit in the cafe area and not be allowed into the big gathering space. And that just doesn't seem fair. I, I get it. It's not fair from our standpoint in time and history. So here, I just want to quickly mention some things that maybe cloud our vantage point when we read ancient history or long ago faraway cultures, okay? So here's just three helpful insights. One, we really truly underestimate the phenomenal impact that Jesus' life and teaching has had on global civilization over the past 2,000 years. I mean, our concepts of human rights, defending the powerless and marginalized, these justice issues, the way we think about them now, were almost unthinkable before Jesus arrived on the scene. So when you're reading these early narratives of the Old Testament, think that they were being played out in really a Wild West atmosphere. Law codes were a fairly new invention. Law enforcement then was rare and certainly non-existent in the ancient Near East where these Hebrews were moving out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was a free-for-all. So here's the helpful tip. When you come across head-scratching laws in the Old Testament that just seem painfully barbaric, remember that it was more than probably an improvement or even a vast improvement on whatever practice was already happening at that time. So, for example, in this instance, instead of being allowed to worship with, or not allowed to worship with the whole assembly, a person with a disability would have been discarded at birth or treated like an animal for their entire life. Barbaric. So, to this context, God is beginning to introduce himself his character, his nature, just beginning to give hints of what he's wanting to do with this world of ours. God Most High, as he was called then, wasn't like all of the other gods of the time who were capricious beings that humans had to interact with. They had to by worshiping or manipulating or cajoling or sacrificing or tricking even to provide some sort of self-preservation in this Wild West atmosphere. This was the reality that these religious experts, Pharisees and Sadducees now, were coming with in their questions to Jesus. So at this point, it's tempting to blame God for being prejudiced, to see him as one God in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, but a completely different God in the New Testament. But that's simply not the case. God is unchanging he simply chose to reveal himself gradually and tangibly in a way that people from each generation would be able to grab onto and build on until now we've come to this fullest and the most tangible, concrete expression of who God is with Jesus. Jesus said 
and, and it got him in tons of trouble. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, to know me is to know the Father. What I'm telling you about him is to get at the core of who he is all along, who he's always been. And so, again, I'm, I'm imagining, as you're listening, there's this ginormous why question out there. Why would God do it that way? Why would he stoop to the barbarism? Why wouldn't he just start with who he is fully? It seems like he's setting us up for failure. But I want to suggest to you that he couldn't have done it any other way. To have offered mercy and forgiveness to people who had no idea they were doing anything wrong would be absolutely meaningless. Here's an example. It's like maybe handing a million $100 bills to some tribal person in Papua New Guinea. So you give them a big old satchel of $100 bills, and they've never seen money before. They have no idea what it is, what its use is. They would mistake it for an amazing-looking leaf, maybe, and either try to eat it or use it like toilet paper. Now, so you take that understanding God had to give context before he could give us mercy and grace. So if we can now understand how incredibly impossible it is for us to please God in any way, how distant, how perfect, how powerful, how other God is from us, now we've got an impossible situation. And now God can reveal how much it's going to cost him to chase after us, to bridge the impossible gap, to not just do that, but to rip open the doors, to smash the gates and bars, to trample those castle walls that have been dividing us in order to invite us to come close to him. Now we can rightly see how much our rebellion and stupid choices have really just spit in God's face and distance us even more. And now we can see how even our best efforts to be the good son, to be obedient, to do the right thing, to bridge that gap ourselves, does nothing more. Now, understand that your dad in heaven runs after you, even when you're far away, at the slightest hint of anyone turning to come back to him. They'll never be a slave again. They're a child of an insanely loving God. You are a child of an insanely loving God. And maybe now for you understand that your dad in heaven leaves the party he's thrown for everyone with a humbled heart to come running after those of us who thought we had our stuff pretty well together. We were never that bad. We at least tried to do the right things, unlike all of those other people who make dumb choices, those people who behave in a way that should clearly separate them from God. Our dad in heaven is saying the party is for us too. We don't have to stand outside being angry and bitter all by ourselves. He's run after all of us so that we can all party with him together today. God, would you please give us a heart that is broken and overwhelmed by your immense love and chase for us. May we live out of that today. Amen.